All right, welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond, and I'll be your host once again this week. And I'm going to be joined by um, Mr. Justin Collette of the Action Report. How are you doing, Justin? Doing good, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, it finally stopped raining. I-, I think you guys have the opposite problem <laughs> down there, but the rest of the United States. Yeah, we actually beginning. had some malicious storms out here. Yeah. So it's been good. Well, it's but, like uh, coming up on know, your monsoon season down there, isn't it? Like, isn't that the time of year for that sort of thing? Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really rain in the desert like normal places. <laughs> it's either a complete and total downpour, everything floods, and just a complete mess, or it's, you know, a smooth 110 for the rest of the summer. Uh, yeah. One or the other. There you go. Oh, I forgot to mention the date. It is July the 9th, 2015. So, um, yes, and what's going on in the headlines? Uh, You know, the uh, Atlantic Challenge Cup was just concluded this uh, last weekend. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was a great event for the juniors to sort of, you know, step up to the, you know, make something a little more international rivalry. I think that was a great thing. But uh, the kids, they had a hard time with it, so they ended up losing 11 games to 9. All things considered, that's really not that bad, though. Um, you know, I they probably don't feel that way. But <laughs> but given the way that the matches went down, <clears throat> they, did, they put up a hell of a fight. And... Uh, you know, they did a better job at it than our grown-up Moscone Cup team did. So, can't, <laughs> can't really complain about that. Uh, yeah, I uh, I didn't really follow that too much. Uh, I saw you know, saw what's going on, saw some posts on social media about it and things like that. I guess there was uh, what I saw. There was like, evidently a little controversy about the conditions in the playing arena. Yeah. One thing I saw, they were complaining about. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was another. I think it was another person. It wasn't any any of the team members that I'm aware of. But a uh, spectator was saying that uh, it was like hot, high nineties and hundred degrees, and yeah. just really tough, tough, tough conditions as far as uh, the venue. But uh, yeah. I didn't. You know, I, did they stream it? I didn't see any answer. Yeah, know, they, they did. They did on Kazoom. They had it on there. Okay. Oh, if Kazoom did it, then they probably did a pretty good job. They usually yeah. They usually do a real good job with stuff they do. They did. They did. It was really nice. But they were... Well, the commentating uh, lacked a little something. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't, like, unpleasant or anything. It's just it was a little a little dead air. But they did make the comment that a lot of people were just outside because it was so dang hot in the building. Um, they were having an unusual heat wave for Europe at the time, so I imagine it was a little sticky. But anyway, you know, it had to be a cool experience for kids. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to think what it would be like as a as a kid that age to go to Europe and play a big full tournament on the screen and stuff like that. That had to be pretty cool. Yeah, for some of them. Hell, one of the kids was like just 16, I think it was, um, 
and some of the kids on the U.S. team had not even left the country ever before. So uh, right. it had to be, you know, culture shock, big time, uh, to go and to not only make that trip, but then, like you said, to be under the cameras and in the heat and on the spot like that. That's a lot of pressure yeah. to fade. So, I, you know, I don't care if they won this time. It was the first one around. Uh, I'm just proud that they did as well as they did, and, you know, hats off to them and all that kind of good stuff. So, Is the theory behind it to do a similar Moscone Cup thing as far as alternating Europe and Yes. The host location? Yep. So next year it's going to be back here in the U.S. somewhere. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, I I don't I don't know really anything about junior pool, which is kind of sad to say. I should know more, I guess, just as a general pool fan. But I'm glad stuff like that happens. It's yeah, important, you know? it is important. And 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 not to go off on a tangent, but it's not it's not really. And I'm not gonna let you off the hook that easy, but it's not necessarily your it's not your fault necessarily that you don't know that much about it because there's not that much mainstream events to begin with, and even the ones that they do have are not you know pounded into everybody's head like some of the other stuff that goes on. Um, I will say though that it's on the junior stuff is on the upswing. Uh, the BEF, bless their hearts, have put the call out this past year for more junior qualifiers for the junior nationals. And according to Sam, I think they're up to 40 different states have junior qualifiers now. I don't know if that's still current information, but I mean, if there's 40 of them, wow. I mean, it, it wasn't just a couple of years ago. There was only like, you know, four or five in it out, you know, in all the states. So that's a good thing for them to, to move up in the world, man. And of course, yeah, I know, you know, Sam works hard. With the juniors, I mean, I'm not sure who else is in, involved with the BEF or, or who does it. You know who mm-hmm. runs it. Yeah, but uh, I I do know from talking to Sam that uh, I mean, she works pretty hard at it. She really is always trying to, to get people, you know, supported and things like that. That's so, true. It's a good it's thing. True. I'm glad. Well, it is. It is because you know what? Who's going to be the next chain? You know, who's going to be the next Allison yeah. or the next Karen? They got to come from somewhere, and if we don't, you know, provide at least some decent opportunities for them to do something, then uh, you know, there's not going to be that many professional players in a few years. So, gotta do something. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine. I mean, he's uh, he doesn't know anything about pool, and he just out of the blue was like, "Hey, man, let's go play some pool." And so I was like, "Okay." So just kind of. He's asking all these questions about, you know, pool and this and that and pros and all this kind of stuff. It's probably one of the first times, like, a friend of mine from outside the game, you know, it's, in my saying, similar demographic age-wise, mm-hmm. has shown any kind of interest in it. Yeah. And from a guy who's got no, no background in it, you know, who's never, never played when he was a kid. Or and uh, I was kind of trying to explain as far as the pro levels go, you know, that in the U.S., what's now, what it's turned into is in the U.S., pool is a gambling game, yeah. whereas in Europe, it's viewed as sport. You know, they have coaches, you know, they have organizations, and, you know, and things yeah. like that, and yeah. federations, right. and it's it's a completely different outlook on the game, Yeah, and whereas in the U.S., 
if you look at the, the path most of our pros, our top guys have followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of them are guys who get good when they're young, yeah. and then they start gambling, and they come up that way, and they start playing tournaments. Right. And, you know, it's they, they've never really had any structure. They come up in that kind of dog-eat-dog, you know, pool room action world. Yeah. Which gives them, in certain, certain ways, it gives them some things that the guys view it as a sport and treat it like one may not necessarily get, but right. it, it's, you know, there's trade-offs there. Yeah. So, and we look, we look around now, and when you start talking about international competition, uh, you know, the pendulum swung pretty much all the way over to the pool as sport type of the guys who were winning those world championships yeah. and Moscone Cups and yeah. things like that. You That's know? right. And so, yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's, it, it's great for the American sport as far as having, we could get a strong junior program to where, you know, the game is treated like a sport. Yeah. Like if you look what Mark Wilson's doing with his uh, college team, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. the game's treated like a sport and, and you know, they're, they're expected to act like athletes. Right. And, uh, so, no, it's good. You know, it's, I'm glad to see that it hasn't, you know, if anything, in my lifetime, it's the first time I've ever seen that in the U.S. where, you know, at least, there's some, it's publicly, you're seeing at least some effort made towards that end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's, uh, I guess, the the street smarts versus the structure, you know, where, right. like you said, now, at least on the junior level, they're trying to put some structure to it um, instead of, like you also said, letting them just come up dog-eat-dog dog and, you know, sort themselves out sort of in the pecking order kind of a thing but yeah it's a good thing to see some positive you know something positive in the right direction yeah yeah and the other thing the other thing about that dog eat dog is the game eats its young yeah yeah you know yeah i mean if you've been anybody's been around the game and seen that you know you see a kid come into the room that might have some potential and it's uh you know without that structure Mm-hmm. There's so many other distractions around the game, uh, especially you know when you're talking about teenagers. Yeah, you yeah. know that you know you see. I've, we've all seen kids that had potential, you know, go off the rails one way or another. Yeah. If there wasn't something there grounding them. Uh, so yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's you know it's a great thing. I'm, I'm glad to see it. Yeah, me too. Let's um, take a quick break. We're going to go to the uh, one-minute pool instructor, and then when we come back, we'll uh, go ahead and uh, catch up with uh, the action report and see what's been going on with you guys, all right? Okay, we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Scott Lee. Randy G. And welcome to the one-minute pool instructor. And this week, we're going to talk about tournaments and tournament directors and whether they should be paid or not. 
<laughs> I, I, I don't work for free, do you, Randy? Uh, no, not at all. But boy, it sure seems like a lot of people expect uh, somebody to run a pool tournament. I don't care if it's in your local bar or they're running it uh, as a local uh, state event or a regional event or a national event. So here's, here's my attitude. Anytime something is free, I already get scared. <laughs> a red flag has already popped up when the word free shows up. Um, as a tournament director, I think there's a fair amount of money that you can make as a job mm -hmm. and, and do it year-round and, and, and create a, a really nice reputation, as many, many people have in the tournament field. Um, yes, I believe all tournament directors should be paid something. Um, and, we're, and you're talking from, bar, from a local bar tournament up to the VNE Nationals, the BCAPL sure. Nationals. Sure. Uh, we pay them. We pay them one way or the other. And I want to pay these people because you want to know something? If I pay them, they're going to be there tomorrow to do it again for me. That's right. And, and you know what? If they're any good at what they do, they're going to do their best job every oh, single time. Yeah. You don't last very long as a poor tournament director. No. Or a poor pool player, as far as I know. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think we pay them, and, and they provide us the entertainment uh, opportunity. That's what it is. And, and uh, it's always... The tournament director is the last word when there's some sort of a ruling. Well, yeah. Whether you not, like it or not. Hey, Scott, not only the last word, but he's there a week before and mm -hmm. five days after the tournament. I sure. mean, his job is undercover most of the time. It is. And, and it's always been amazing to me that people expect somebody to run a pool tournament and not make a dime out of it. And that's just silly. Yeah, well, that doesn't happen the second time then. <laughs> so there goes your tournament. So, yeah, let's pay our tournament directors an equal fair value. When we go to the movies, what do we have to do, Scott? Well, I don't like paying $12 to go to the movies, but, but we do, don't if we? I want to see the movie, I go. And then $12 for a box of popcorn? <laughs> yeah. now, when, when, now, when tournament directors start selling popcorn... Then I might take a second look at this. <laughs> Absolutely. But they're fair in what they do, and they do a great job overall. So, for American Billiard Radio and the One Minute Pool Instructor, I'm Scott Lee. I'm Randy G. And we'll see you next week. And we're back, everybody, and I'm talking with uh, Justin Collette of the Action Report. Um, and before I get into him uh, about the, the uh, catching up with Tar, I also want to, to uh, do CSI a favor and, and mention the fact that uh, their um, league championships are coming up right around the corner here pretty soon. And also, the uh, is it the 8-ball open and the 10-ball open? are also coming up on the, at that same time, uh, I should say at the same week. And, of course, the uh, World 14-1 is pretty much right around the corner, too. So there's a lot of pool going, going on here. You, sometimes, you know, you like to think of the summer being like the dead season, but uh, not so much, you know. There's some stuff going on, so it's not all bad. Oh, you know what, and one other thing, too. Dun dun dun! You can't forget, fight night number fifteen is coming up too. <laughs> uh, Mr. Dominguez is biting off more than he can chew. He's he's gonna hit up Bergman first, 
they're playing for a $20,000 entry. Wow. And uh, a race to 80. Duh. Jeez, Pete's. And then uh, right after that, Oscar's taking on Sky Woodward. So uh, that's a race to 100. What, what, so he's playing pinball with Bergman? And what's he playing with Nine ball. Same game or different game? Nine ball? Nine ball. That's with, with, yeah, yeah. He's got, and that's going to be at good times in uh, in Vegas there. That's, uh, wow. Oscar's that's a cool room. I, I was out there the other night, and uh, they did a good job with that place. And it's really cool to see him doing matches in there, too. You yeah. know, Oscar and uh, John played out there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then they've been... I mean, gambling real high. Oh, yeah. And then, the, the you know, I watched some of the uh, Alex and Frost match on the stream. I didn't go out and sweat in person, but uh, they got a great room there. Real cool main table. It's good to see that. What, uh, they got uh, diamond tables in there? Yeah. I want to say they got one diamond, and a, you know, they got a sunken pit area. It's it's real reminiscent of uh, uh, the cool sharp setup, but they've got it sunk down in the floor. Mm-hmm. It's cool, makes it easy to watch. Yeah. And then they've got okay, three or four other nine footers, and then they got uh, diamond bar boxes in there. They got a real nice bar area. Um, it's and the thing that I absolutely love about it is it's the only non-smoking pool room in Vegas. Really, which is awesome. Wow. Because I, everywhere else is smoking. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, in, in Vegas, you know, all almost all bars uh, that are set up as bars that have gambling and stuff in the bar with the slot machines. Yeah. Um, they almost all allow smoking. Um, as far as tar goes, you know, there was some confusion. Uh, I kind of made a post about it on EZ. Yeah. I guess last week or early, I don't know. lately I can't I can't tell time anymore. Um, but basically, what it is is uh, you know we closed the studio and basically a year ago uh, it was July of fourteen. Uh, the lease was up and we decided uh, to to close the studio and not re up and. At that point, Mark and I decided kind of just wrap it up, and uh, we, you know, went kind of went our separate ways on par. And then I, I, I went to work for CSI for a little while, but uh, I, I own the internet or international, the intellectual property, basically the brand and the catalog. It's hard. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and I, I'd always had plans to keep keep doing stuff with Tar, like Andrew Cleary and I. Uh, we did the uh, Shane Van Boning instructional, and then we did uh, instructional with Darren Appleton. Mm-hmm. And we had always had plans to keep doing those because we enjoy them. And uh, you know, Shane and Darren both both enjoyed the deals that we did, and we were happy with the product we put out. And then we. Uh, just recently uh, released the second uh, Perfect Practice 2 uh, DVD. Actually, not even a DVD, it's a video. 
But uh, Predator was on board again. They sponsored the first one, and uh, they supported us again this time. And it, it, it was really cool. We got to film it in Darren's home pool room. Mm. We went there. And it, it's, it's cool because when we were filming it, you're surrounded. I mean, it was kind of surreal. When Cleary and I walked in, we were laughing because we're looking around this pool room, and you know, everywhere you look, there's Moscone Cup medals. You know, there's these giant world championship trophies, and you know, hanging from this corner is a U.S. Open green jacket, mm. and it's just you know, everywhere you look is the biggest awards in the sport, and uh, it's just really cool. Uh, an atmosphere. He's done a good job with that room, putting it together. And, uh, you mean like his home so, home room at his house? Home room at his house. Yeah, okay. His house. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he set it up, uh, and Darren does, does lessons and stuff out of his house as well. Which he, uh, so I mean, normally like we film the first ones in the studio, which is it's awesome. You know, we have a facility like that, and we were gonna go. We we were talking about going to a pool room and. You know, either doing a deal with the pool room owner or renting a renting you know a section of the room and lighting it and doing everything like that. But uh, we decided it would actually be kind of cool. The idea, you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we decided to give it a shot and see how it would work. Uh, as far as shooting it in Darren's house in his home room, yeah. And you know, we've always kind of we were we were kind of nervous about doing it because. We didn't want it to look like some of the older, you know, like by most of the pool instructional videos you see that are shot in somebody's home room looks like it's shot in somebody's home room. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. One camera, yeah. you know, and it looks like you're in somebody's basement. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, uh, so we, we, we made a concerted effort to where it doesn't have that look and feel, and I don't think it does. I think it came out very nice. Uh, and it, it's it's pretty cool, and, and the whole point behind the the perfect practice series with Darren is the fact that Darren is a guy who is very analytical about his game and how how he does what he does and why he does what he does. It goes back to that uh, thing we were talking about, where Europeans view it as sport. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you know. And Darren works on the skills of his game the same way, you know, a soccer player would work on the skills of his game, or a tennis player, or or any other you know sport you can you can imagine. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, one thing that I'm real glad to work with Darren about is, you know, in my opinion, you know, very few guys win as much as Darren does in huge events. Yeah. You know, yeah. And gets to the finals like he does. Yeah. yeah I mean, he, yeah. if you go back and you start, because when we really started looking, and, and that's the other thing that that room kind of brings home, is when you start looking at the titles of these trophies, you know, these are major international events. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when he gets to the finals, you know, he wins. Yeah. And, and that's something that I've, you see time and time again, you know, you see guys, they can get there, they can get to the quarterfinals, you know, they can get 
to the finals. And but it, it's rare, you know, it, that's that next level, the elite of the elite. Yeah, are the guys who just somehow manage to win more than their share. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I mean, we kind of saw. Like I remember Alex before he kind of broke through. You know, second, third, third, second. You know, he was always kind of there, but he never really seemed to break through and start winning. And then he won his first major, and then from there on, he started winning more and more. Mm. But uh, you know, I mean. Yeah, so, that no was doubt. kind of the thing with Darren and, and doing these uh, instructionals, and that's one thing uh, Andrew and I really kind of wanted to tap into as much as because these are drill-based videos, mm-hmm. and and what they do is Darren, uh, like in, in the new one, it's 14 drills. And like in the beginning, one of the ones he does is uh, the drill that he'll do when he's just warming up, which is like a <laughs> tournament or something like that. Yeah. And it's something that he'll just, one of the first things he does to get loose and work on his stroke and relax. And it's really interesting, you know, not just the drills, but why he does them and his mindset as he's doing them. You know, what he's looking at, what he's focusing on, you know, what he's worried about, what he's not worried about. Right. because, you know, to me, especially at any kind of competitive level, pool is a mental game. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, 80, it is. You know, I'd say maybe 80% mental. Yeah. And when you're talking about it in an elite level, you know, when, you, when you've got, when you've got, when you're at a level where everyone runs out, then it all, it all comes down to, oh, yeah. you know, the mental side Keeping of your focus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the top guys, there's there's not one guy out there that can make a shot that another guy can't make. No, right. You know, they all exactly. make the balls. Exactly. So it, it's, you know, who executes under pressure. Right. And uh, so and that's something Darren has proven. To, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, over and over and over arguing. again, yes. Yeah. So Absolutely. Uh, and, did you see um, on the internet where somebody had asked uh, about uh, if all the uh, if all of his drills, if, if any of them had to have a retake, or did he get them right the first time all the way through? Oh no, no, it's you know, it, it's it's funny because uh, you know, no, we 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 obviously you know he doesn't drill everyone the first time he shoots it, um, but. It's surprising how many he does. But some of these drills are brutal. Yeah. And that's one of the things is a lot of the drills, especially the harder ones, and, and these are a lot of, you know, as far as I know, I mean, most of these ones, Darren's either dreamt up on his own or some of them he's seen other places and modified to, to mm-hmm. do what he wants to do with them. Yeah. But, uh, like, especially the harder ones, um, he'll... You know, he'll give you, before you start, I'll say, look, if you're an amateur, and that's kind of how he breaks them down. Like, basically, he calls it an amateur and pro. And you can make your own distinction on, you know, where, you know, A player, B player, whatever you want, however somebody wants to look at it. Yeah. But, like, on certain drills, you know, say, okay, for a pro, you can't use anywhere else for position. You have to use all speed. Um, And then, if you're an amateur, you can use one rail. 
or you know, and there's there's kind of two ways to do a drill, and uh, you know he always shoots it the hard way. And there's there's a couple of drills on this new one that uh, it's just you know the ones. It's funny because when you're shooting something like this, you know, and, and he sets, sets up this drill and you look at it and you're like, oh, God, we're going to be here all day trying to get a clean one on this. And he'll rip right through it. Yeah. <laughs> and then there'll be like something easy and you're like, oh, oh this is crazy. He's burn right through this one. <laughs> and something goofy happens, you know. Yeah. That's just the way it works. But, uh, no, there's definitely some editing involved as far as, you know, get, just the, and it's more about being concise and showing the drill. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's not done as anything, you know, to say that, you know, Darren does every one of these drills perfect every time he does it. Right, no. He doesn't. Well, but, no, uh, right. If he, if he did them perfect every time, then there would be no reason to practice those drills, basically. You know? Right, yeah. And uh, now, like on certain drills, uh, you know, he has like a personal number. Like the, one of the drills he does... Um, it's 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 a, it's it's a, basically it's a one ball drill, but you have to play position each time, mm-hmm. and then you respot a ball. There and he go. has like a certain high number that he's been able to accomplish on this drill. And he mentions it before he starts, and he says, "You know, my high run is this. Uh, if I hit X number, then I know I'm 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 hitting the ball good. I'm seeing the ball good." And, you know, if I'm not in that range, you know, I know something's off and, you know, I need to either adjust or focus on uh, on my, you know, mechanics or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's just, that's that's kind of all part of it. You know, I think people learn different differently. You mm-hmm. know, some people, sure, they sure. can look at something. Um, you know, the thing to me, you know, I've never really been an instructional guy. Um the thing that I wanted to kind of get to capture in these instructionals is as much as, you know, but there's so much instructional stuff out there that, um, and good quality stuff by, by instructors who that's all they do is teach. So I think it's, you know, I, I didn't want to try and reinvent the wheel. Right. But the one thing I did want to capture with these players that you're just not going to get from an instructor who can teach you how to hit the ball straight um, is, you know, the one thing that these guys offer, you know, and and in all honesty, they may not, you know, be the the greatest instructor. But what you do get is that mindset and a look inside a competitor. Right, exactly, exactly. Because, like, if you look at the two guys we've worked with between Shane and Darren, you know, those guys, who who else has won what they've won combined in the last 10 years? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And how often do you get to uh, have them show you, like you said, what's going on in their head while they're trying to practice, you know? Right, exactly, and, that, and that's one of the things I really tried to capture, because that's what interests me, and to me that's important. Yeah. Um, and the feedback we've gotten on these things is, you know, some people really like that. Some people, some people take away things that never even occurred to me. You sure. know, or right. and then and you know, Andrew Clary, my partner, on these, who's uh, a huge part of the project and deserves you know most of the credit on because he 
does all the editing and he does the graphics and stuff like that. And he does an amazing job. Uh, but like he, he sees things differently than I see them. Yeah. And, uh, so it's always, you know, it's pretty cool. And I really liked the, uh, the, the aspect of, of what we've done with these instructionals. And we want to do more mm-hmm. and we're going to do more. Uh, and I, you know, definitely work with, Darren again, that's been great. And uh, maybe do some more stuff with Shane. Um, sure. But it's uh, it's cool. But getting back, that was kind of a long way around to talk about what's going <laughs> what's on going with on with Tar, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, before we made our reputation on live streaming, and and of course with the Tar matches and things like that. And uh, as far as the live streaming goes, uh, I don't have access to the equipment that we used, and to to get the level of quality and production that we were doing uh, before. So that's uh, one reason I'm not doing any live streaming now. The other reason is uh, I really, I kind of feel like the live streaming thing, you know, I, I really kind of feel like I've personally that I've kind of done all there is to do uh, in that, you know, I've done tournaments, I've done, all the matches, uh, you know, I, I, I liked, I, I liked the matches. Um, I was never really crazy about tournaments where you're doing something for five or six or seven days or something like that. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I mean, it was, I'm glad I did them, but it's like, I've done them. I've done enough of them. Yeah. You know, I've done them since 2007 and all over the country. And, uh, so, to me, you know, what I do like, though, is creating new things and interesting things and capturing stories. And uh, so, that's that's kind of the direction that I want to go with TAR now is uh, little or no live streaming and more traditional production, like with, you know, the Darren thing, uh, like... We're just going to release, uh, it'll probably be up probably tomorrow, Friday. Um, we did a 45-minute interview with Darren. That's mm-hmm. uh, a very high-quality interview. Um, and it's his whole life story. In his own words, uh, multiple cameras. And it's going to be for free. We're going to release it. Not charging anything for it. Um and it's going to be up there. It'll be on our YouTube channel, and like something like that. Even though you know we're releasing it for free, we're not making, you know, we're not monetizing it. But something like that, to me, I, I it, it, it's I really like making that kind of thing because sure. In thirty years, you know, you're going to be able to go back and exactly. look and see yes. at this great player. Exactly. In his own words, exactly. in his prime, you know, you're going to be able to, to see, you know, him tell his story. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, how cool would it be to be able to see a 45-minute interview with Moscone in his prime? That's exactly it. You know, that's exactly the it. That's that's part of the reason why we do what we do also, is the fact that this is a, a, a you know, obviously the audio is not 
it's good as video, but it's still, it's still, it is them in their own voice. It's not a story. You're not reading it. It's them talking and you get to hear it. And like you, just like you said, in so many years from now, how just like, just like you said, I've had that same conversation with, I don't even know how many people where it's like, how cool would it be to have a sit down with Willie Moscone or Ralph Greenleaf or Will, uh, Willie Hoppy mm-hmm. or, or hell, you know, Miserac or, you know, Jimmy Karras or something you get, you can watch them play in lots of different venues, lots of streams and, you know, the tournaments and what have you, but you don't get that personal time with a lot of these people that would be, you know, so valuable to get to know them. And, and, and just like you were saying, Cleary seeing things different than you do, you may or might not realize um, that you're building fans. When people, the more they know about somebody, the more emotionally invested they are in what this person does as a player. So it's to everybody's benefit to do stuff like that. And I encourage you to do it as much as you can. Well, you know, I think as far as that's, you know, talking about, you know, people being able to see things, and that's, you know, Tar always has, you know, some people claim this, you know, we're Shane home fans or whatever, we're, you know, Team Shane and all this stuff. And, you know, I I don't know. Maybe to an extent, you know, we were, but part of that was because it was one of those things where Shane was there at the beginning of Tar, and Tar was there at the beginning of Shane, and it right. was you know we kind of grew you know together as Shane was rising. You know, we were kind of there to document it, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's interesting that I, I come sometimes wonder that you know maybe Shane, especially his earlier people, was. You know, the fact that there was so much, you know, he got a lot of attention right. online and things like that. And there was a lot of video right. of Shane because we were there either doing matches or doing interviews and things like that and right. getting it out there. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying that Tar, you know, no, I don't anything think other, uh, did yeah. anything other than give him a venue. Right, right, for right, people right. to see, you know who he is, right. and so you know that's something. I was looking back the other day through some uh, photos, and, and I got some. I found one in particular. Of, it's 2007, and it's Shane standing in the basement of Lucky's, where he was playing out of, and this is this old like 1800s building in downtown Sioux Falls. And it's just giant stone walls in this basement with pool tables in it. And uh, he's just a skinny kid standing there with uh, his mom's <laughs> Sean that he used to play with. And it's really cool because, you know, now here we are eight years later, you know, and the kid may never, you know, he, he may win every U.S. Open Nine Ball Championship from now until it's canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Man. Run. But, yeah, uh, that's true. So, you know, it's, and then, you know, like this thing with Darren and some of the other stuff we've done that aren't matches. I mean, the matches are awesome, and, and I'm very proud of all the matches. Sure, sure. We got to see some great moments. Yes, that's history, uh, too. 
but you know it, that more traditional, almost documentary style uh, type content is, is what excites me. You know, it's like I, I I talk with Andrew or talk with other people, and we talk about you know, doing certain projects, and it, it's you know you know I, I'd love to do something like uh, I've talked about doing a documentary about the Derby forever. Yeah. And it's something I would really like to do. And uh, I've had cool. some interest and, you know, something like that. Or, you know, I think it'd be pretty awesome to follow Shane around for a year. Yeah. And, you know, or something like that. Or even Darren, you sure. know, to see what it's, to give people an idea of, you know, what it's like. Because fans of the game, I think, have this idea of what it's like, but I don't think people understand for a guy like Shane or Darren, uh, there's only maybe four or five guys in the United States who do it. Yeah. But I don't think people really get how brutal the travel is. Right. 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 I mean, what, what, you know, what it's really, really like. Right. Cause these guys, I mean, Shane was on the road for, and I only say Shane because I'm more familiar with his schedule than with Darren's. But uh, if anything, Darren's is probably worse because I think he plays more international stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, there was a time where I would say from late 2007 until, you know, he kind of slacked off a little bit this year as far as uh, not traveling to some of the international stuff. But, I mean, what, almost, you know, six or seven years, you know, Shane was probably gone. You know, he might have been home three months a year. Yeah. If you average it out over the whole yeah, year. Yeah, if even that much. That's the right. time he was living yeah. in hotels. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like that uh, the the road player, um, you know, or the hustler, um, m- not mentality, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Illusion. Where people are, um, I think they're attracted to the romantic notion of living like that style, you know. But um, like you said, when the rubber hits the road, that's not, it's not as easy as you might think to live out of a suitcase and travel and be worried about, you know, I just dropped three grand on a plane ticket and am I going to make my money back, <laughs> you know. That's, uh, well, yeah, that's the other thing, too. That's I mean, going to be There's guys out there that pressure. travel for work and and things like that, but, you know, most people who do that, you know, they, they know they're going to get a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, when when you're, you know, it's a hell of a life, man. Yeah. I mean, it's it is. a hell of a life, and it, it's, and you've got to go, and you got to be world beaters, you know, and that's one thing, there's people that are, I've seen, you know, online, on the internet, and, some people are militant about it. Others just make observations about how, you know, the U.S. players aren't a force in international play anymore because they don't play international events anymore. Right. And some I've seen some people put it on the players, basically almost making it sound like they're scared or something. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, my opinion's always been, you know, I don't blame these guys that don't want to go play international. You know, I mean, if you if you if there is this big demand to have American players be successful in international events, then there should be some support mechanism there 
to help them out. Yeah. As far or, or to at least have an organization, and, and that you know when you do select representatives, that there's support there. Yeah. But to not have any support for them, and then you know give them crap because they don't go is crazy. Yeah. But I mean, if if you look at it from a strictly you know business point of view, which that's the other thing is. You know, Pro players, they have a tough, <laughs> a tough spot, man. Yeah. Because, you know, pe- people expect them to, to be professional and, and, and act like a business and, you know, make smart decisions. But then, you know, kind of when they do and they look at a, you know, like an international tournament from a, you know, risk-reward situation, you know, you've you got all the travel. Yeah. And then a lot of these tournaments, you know, the equipment... You don't know what it's going to be from one time to the next. Right, you know? right. It, you know, I was there's, having... There's var- you know, there's variables, but, you know, the yes. variables are the same for everyone who plays. Right. But, you know, you, you get a guy who's, you know, I mean, it just uh, it's not hard to figure out why a guy doesn't want to fly halfway around the world. Well, no, it's... Grand right, right, exactly. And, and, have to, and have to, you know, and be gone. the best in the world in weird formats. And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, if you don't, you know, if you, you got to come top four to make any kind of money. Right. You know? exactly. Or you can stay home and play in a regional $1,000 at a tournament, you know, sleep in your own bed mm-hmm. and stand to probably make more money. I was having a conversation so, with somebody about this very thing, uh, and it was sometime last year. And it was the exact same sort of conundrum is, you know, why don't these guys go play? And if I recall correctly, the, the this conversation was being had right before a major event. I want to say it might have been the U.S. Open. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that they were talking about why didn't so-and-so go over to China and play or go to, over here. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, I can understand the argument of... Uh, you know, not being able to hold your own on the international stage if you don't play international events. Okay, I got that. However, in this particular case, they were suggesting that, you know, it might have done so-and-so good to go and play internationally to train for this upcoming American event. And I said, you know, think about it for a second. Not only, like you said, the money invested in time and travel, you know, food, lodging, airplane, everything else, that's that's its own consideration by itself. But if you think about the reality of it, you're going to be uh, on a plane overseas. Is You might as well just write off 48 hours um, oh, yeah. between you know prepping, travel time to and from the airport, actual flight time to and from the airport, and then you got to rest. So there's basically two days gone. And then while you're at the event itself, you're only going to have a couple of hours prior to practice. Let's just say you got lucky and you got three, four, or five hours of practice time in before the actual event. Then during the event, you're not playing for five days straight. You're playing a match here. You're playing a set here. You're playing a couple of sets there. And maybe if you don't do that well, you didn't even get to play that much. So then you're back on the plane, back home again. Before it's all said and done, you, you're gone 
for 10 days maybe, or if it's a shorter tournament, you know, you're gone for a week, you spent all that money, and in that week's time, you only might have had, you know, eight hours of practice and an entire practice or play in an entire week. Whereas you could have spent a week practicing every single day, all day in preparation for something. So it's like you mentioned, the trade-off is, you know, eh. I'm not saying they shouldn't compete on the international stage, but you know, you got to think about how much actual play time is involved there versus what could have been useful practice time anyway. And I think, you know, I, I think the guys who do do it, um, benefit from it, you know, for the most part, because they are exposed to those conditions and that's a different kind of pressure. Yes. And they have experience, you know, you, a guy like Oscar, you know, Oscar was going to a lot of international events and he was going on his own dime, you know, and I think it's made him a better player. Sure. Uh, John Mora, another example, you know, John has been trying, you know, he, he tries to do as much of that stuff as he can. And I think you're seeing him improve. You know, he just finished second in the China Open. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, those guys, they do get benefit from it. Oh, and, yeah. But, you know, they also put out a lot, you know, to put themselves in position to gain that. And I think I think the guys who do do it deserve recognition and deserve support. And I think the guys who choose not to do it, you know, shouldn't be ridiculed. No, and, uh, no it's a tough spot. Because, yeah, so... You know, to me, it's one of those things to where I understand, you know, some fans, you know, lamenting the fact that we're not the international force we once were. And the fact of the world is, you know, fact of the matter is the rest of the world just got better. Oh, they have. They have. And it's, it would be, you know, it would be nice. You know, it would be one thing, you know, if there was an organization that said, okay, look, you know, the world pinball is coming up. Mm. It's in wherever it's at on the other side of the world. Uh, we want to take the top three ranked players, and they go to the top three, and we're going to, you know, they're going to want to pay their way. You know, they're going to, airfares covered, entry. You know, we're sending you to represent the United States in the world pinball. Right, right. Um, and then the top three guys all said, "Well, no, I'm not going to go play." Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Then, yeah. Then, okay. Yeah. Yeah rip them a little bit they deserve it yeah uh in my opinion but you know and unless and until such a situation exists you know you you can't expect a guy (laughs) you know how can you rip a guy for not wanting (laughs) to fly across the world risk four grand and have to be you know the best in the world and you know maybe break even yeah (laughs) maybe yeah (laughs) Yeah, Since. there ain't too many guys who do that day in and day out. No, to make a that. no, that's so, not. You know, the guys who do, you know, you got to give them a break. But, <clears> yeah. yeah, no, I hear you. All right, man. Uh, I think we put everybody to sleep at this point, so uh, we might as well <laughs> might as well call oh, it a day. I just wanted to plug one more thing. Yeah, go I ahead, go ahead. If I can. Yeah. Uh, I, there was, uh, I just started printing uh, prints. Uh, photographic prints. Oh, yeah. Um, anybody that ever watched the tar match, um, there was four big black and white prints on the wall by the table. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Alex Pagulian, uh, 
Efren, Shane, and Boosty. Yeah. Uh, oh, so that was the order they were in. But uh, over the years, man, people were just beating me up about wanting those prints. There you, you go. You want the exact ones on the wall or wanting copies or whatever. So uh, I, I always told myself at some point I'm going to sell prints to those. Okay. So uh, just recently I've, I've started uh, selling prints, paper prints, as well as uh, these beautiful canvas prints that I've not had Ooh, made. Very nice. Um, two different two different price points, um, but it's all on the website on theactionreport.com, and uh, there you the go. prints are are available, and I'm shipping them now. Cool. And uh, so, if anybody, if you've got a pool room or anything like that, it's a really cool, uh, unusual. You know, it's not dogs playing pool, <laughs> and it's not the same. 10, you know, pool photos you see in everybody's same homeroom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're, they're really pretty cool. But, uh, Very good. And so. Awesome. That's it. That's all I got to push, man. All right. <laughs> Excellent. No Girl Scout cookies or anything, huh? All right. Cool. No, no. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time, Justin, uh, for catching up with this and uh, giving us the scoop. Um, I, I'm going to... Uh, I'm gonna, yeah. I I was gonna start ragging on you about who you should document, but uh, I'll save that for another day. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've got some more ideas. Got, yeah, I'm working on some stuff. There you go. So. Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. And we will catch up with you again uh, next week. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host, Allison Fisher, and joining me this week is Helene Guerin. Welcome to the show, Helene. Well, thanks for having me. So I had an interesting thing happen this week, and as I was on on Twitter, I got a message from Benny and... This individual happens to be working on a project featuring the photographs of yours that you took at the famous Bensinger's pool room back in 1970. Yes. So uh, I was very stunned to get this message uh, from Benny, who is one of the co-founders of Nor'Wester Books in Oregon, so I went and checked out the website, and I was uh, very delighted to see that this project is is uh, is happening to bring your photographs of Bensinger's, which was the one of the most famous rooms in Chicago. So tell me a little bit about how this project came to be, and sort of your uh, your background in. Uh, in Bensinger's and, and how all of that happens. Well, okay. Uh, well, I'll start out by telling you how I got to Bensinger's in the first place. I uh, was asked, I was going to Ohio State and they asked me to leave after two and a half years. And uh, I was, I guess it was kind of my misspent youth period and I just started hanging around pool halls and learning how to shoot pool. I love the game. 
And um, so anyway, I decided to walk the straight and narrow and signed up for art uh, photography classes at the Chicago Art Institute. And um, my first assignment, I was taking a class by the curator at the print department at the Art Institute named Hugh Edwards. Uh, for those of you who might be photography aficionados, he's the guy that apparently discovered Robert Frank. So that's, I sh I'll say no more about him because if anyone knows anything about photography, they'll know who Robert Frank is. Anyway, mm -hmm. our first assignment was to do a series of photographs. So I'm thinking, wow, Bensingers would be perfect. They have all these great-looking characters, and they have the, this beautiful side lighting. You know, the place is dark except for those triangular lamps over the table. So you mm -hmm. get, you know, beautiful, beautiful angles and lighting. So anyway, started going into Bensingers, and I really didn't know. I, I had no idea at the time how famous it was, that it's the pool that the Hustler was based on. It just happened to be a beautiful, old-timey pool hall. So anyway, I, at first I was kind of cowardly, and I used my telephoto lens. And then I was in there so often that I became a fixture, and I could just plop down right next to the table and take pictures of these guys shooting, and it didn't seem to bother them in the slightest. So anyway, I, I, you know, I printed the photographs, and I turned them in for my assignment. And Hugh Edwards is sitting there going through the photographs, and he's taking some, putting them in one pile, and others putting them in another pile. And when he got through, I said, I'm thinking, why is he doing that? And then when he got through, he said, I want to buy these. And I almost fainted. I, I think that was the biggest honor I've ever had in my life. So anyway, I said, no, no, you don't have to pay for them. I'll give them to you. He says, no, no, I want to buy them. So I said, okay, five bucks a piece. So... So then, you know, life went on, and I went through various incarnations, and I gave up any hope of making money as a photographer because I couldn't do commercial photography, and I didn't want people to tell me what to shoot, and nobody seemed to want to pay me for any artistic photographs. So I just, you know, got busy living, supporting my family. And then uh, I moved to, eventually moved to Portland, and I, one night I have a friend over, to watch The Sopranos, that's how long ago this was, and um, he's a movie and book critic, so I don't, that's, you'll find out the importance of that later. We got to talking about shooting pool, and I said, you know, when I went to the Art Institute, I did a series of photographs. So I go and I drag these photographs out of the closet. They've been sitting there for, I don't know, 30 years, and I showed it to my friend, and he said, my God, these are fantastic. He says, you've got to get these in a gallery. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so I just said, maybe I'll give it a try. So I dragged him around to a few galleries. You know, there are these beat-up little 5 by 7 prints, with probably with fingerprints on them and everything. So then this guy, Chris Bennett, who's from Norwestern Books and was managing a photography studio gallery, called me up and he said, we want to do a show of your photographs. And... That was the first time I almost fell off the chair. <laughs> so I ran around, you know, flat together and framed a bunch of prints. And, you know, I figured that's my 15 minutes. So then, that was about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Then, several months ago, Chris calls me again and he says, I want to publish a book of your pool room photographs. And, you know, I, I would say that's the second time I almost fell off the chair. So we are just gung-ho on this project. And he's trying to start a photography book publishing business. 
and I'm trying to get my book printed, so we decided to put the project on Kickstarter in order to finance all the expenses we, to, you know, to produce this book. And it's going to be a, it's not, it's going to be a beautiful, hardbound, classy, high, you know, really high quality book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's how it all came about. And Tell then, what, oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say then, because of this Kickstarter thing, people started coming out of the woodwork. I guess there's a tremendous amount of nostalgia about Benzinger's. You know, I had no idea the can of worms I was opening up. <laughs> you know, for example, last night I was on the phone with, there was a character, a famous character from Benzinger's named Freddie the Beard. I, I actually have several photographs of him, not knowing even who he was. I talked to his daughter last night who was telling me she used to get her diapers changed at Bensinger's. And we just hit it off like a house on fire. We were on the phone for about an hour. And um, so, and also, I, I have another friend who used to be one of the Bensinger's regulars who called me right after the photography show. And he, he's great. He's a great character. He says, hi, my name's Macy Smith, and I Googled Bensinger's and came up with your name. So <laughs> he has been a wealth of information, and he's so much fun. So he and I have gotten to be great friends, and um, he's done some recordings of anecdotes he remembers from Bensinger's, and you would die laughing if you heard some of them. Oh, my wow. God. They're hilarious. So we have this big fantasy that someday I'll have a show in New York, and while people are walking around looking at my photographs, they'll hear Macy telling anecdotes in the background on the PA system. I think that would be a fantastic idea. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So, I I got to meet Freddie last year, and I feel so fortunate that I did because, um, as you know, uh, he's no longer with us. And he and Kat were touring to promote, to promote his book, uh, Encyclopedia of Fool Hustlers. Uh-huh. And Chicago... It has uh, really does have a rich history for pool, and actually the um, the founder of the American Billiard Radio is also the founder of the Chicago Billiard Museum, David Bond. Oh. So I know he'll be really thrilled to get to uh, hear about your experience there. And I'm I'm wondering. Uh, what was it, do you think, that brought you back there to Ben Singer's? I know you talked about the characters, and uh, what was it about the game itself that you really enjoyed? Oh, my God, I love the game. It, first of all, it's extremely difficult. And, you know, I, I love it when you walk in and you see these people with these little air bridges. Yeah. They're thumb up, teetering on a couple of fingers. They think that's how you I uh, I might not be good at pool, but I have a perfect Willie Moscone bridge. <laughs> the problem is I don't have the athletic ability. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just can't do it. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, no stupid people cannot be good at pool. Because oh, you, have, not. you know, you have to, it's all geometry, and you have to plan the next, well, I don't know, in Willie Moscone's case, you have to plan the next 500 shots, <laughs> you know. It's it's a very cerebral game in addition to requiring great physical prowess. And it's just, not only that, it's so damn much fun. I mean, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than drink a beer, put a cigarette on the side of the table, and take a shot. 
I mean, it's, I, that, I mean, that really brings out the bad girl side of me. I just love shooting pool. Don't do it at all anymore, but I can get vicarious thrills now, I guess. Well, it does have a way of bringing people together, and for me, intergenerationally, I, I grew up with pool players for parents. And oh, you do? Yes. Yes, I did. So uh, having all these stories to be passed down from people who experienced that sort of golden era like, like Freddie did is really invaluable for, for us to be able to share with, uh, with the future generations of, of pool players, whether they be casual players or ones who want to get more serious in the game for whatever crazy reason they might want to do that. But uh, it's it's really a great community of, of people that love uh, sharing the stories and seeing, uh, seeing different personalities and seeing different styles and learning from one another. So it's, a, it's really a, a special thing that you and uh, Chris, and Benny are are able to do hopefully the Kickstarter campaign is is a success. Well, I know a lot of people would really like to see it happen. Well, that brings up a point, and I hate to sound like a money grubber, but this project is not going to happen unless people kick in some money at Kickstarter. It's we've gotten off to a very slow start. You know, there's an awful lot of talk about oh, your books are so great, I can't wait to see it. Well, they're not going to see it unless we get it financed. Mm-hmm. So. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> There's one other thing I wanted to tell you. You know, you were telling me how, you know, how big pool is in New York. And, I, you know, I'm sure you're aware of that program, The Hustler. Yeah. It's on. Okay, which, of course, I watch regularly. And I got my friend Macy Smith to watch it. And he said, well, you know, he's kind of having annoying. Don't you think it's good? He says, well, there is a one person on that show that my friend Artie can beat. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> so, Indian. So, you know, I had no idea that I was going to unleash this complete crazy nostalgia over Bensingers. You know, like I said, I was kind of kind of watching there. In, in, I mean, inadvertently, I had no idea that it was such a you know landmark, and I never. I, I didn't even know at the time that it was the billiards, the, the place that, been, that uh, the hustler is based on. Mm-hmm. Hello. Oh, I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I just kind of stumbled into it, and now I'm so thankful that I managed to take those photographs and that people are enjoying them. I got to get with. Uh, Freddie's a beard's daughter, and he ever see if she can identify some of these people for me. Yes, I, I know that there are some people. Actually, I shared the link to the Kickstarter page on on my Facebook page, and I know that uh, a number of people had mentioned who they thought would be good people to talk to and look at the photos and identify some some of the people there. Well, there so I'm. Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say there are two people in particular that I'm concerned about identifying or finding or identifying. First of all, I Bob Siegel was the owner, and I've got a couple of pictures of him in there. And I, I, I have a feeling he may have passed away because 
I had his phone number for a while, and he nobody seems to know how to get in touch with him, and he is an older guy. And the other person I just find out the name of is, I don't know if you recall, there's one photograph. You know, when I do that little video thing, they're interviewing me, mm-hmm. and I talk about that photograph that I, my favorite photograph that made my life worthwhile, the guy leaning on the table with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Yes. I, that picture, that photograph, has brought me so much joy. I love that. If, like I said, if, if I accomplished nothing else in my life, my life was worthwhile for that one photograph. I would love to find out who this guy is. Oh, so yeah. Thank him. He <laughs> has such uh, Bob Dylan hair. Right. Well, it's great. <laughs> I love it. The, I mean, the tension. You know, he's watching the ball go right into the pocket, and his one foot is off the ground, and the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. It was just the perfect moment in time. It's so dramatic. <laughs> and that's one of the beautiful things about pool is that sometimes everything is just hanging in the balance depending on that one shot. So that's right. There's, uh, there's all sorts of uh, drama and stories that can be told around the game. Well, it's really been a pleasure having you on this show. Is there, you know, anything else you want to you want to mention or talk about related to the book? How What's the best way for people to get in touch, get involved in the project? Well, let's see. Well, you know, Kickstarter is the best way to get involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also on Facebook now. So yes, I'm, I'm such a dinosaur. Chris insisted that I get on Facebook, which I never did until last night. And then I couldn't get off, of course. But anyway, they they want to contact me on Facebook, my name, maybe you can spell my name for them, or should I spell it? Sure, I will... Uh, It'll be mentioned in the oh yeah the website. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll make sure to add links and, and everything, so people will be able to contribute and find out more information and get involved. So we wish you the best of luck, and it's really been a pleasure speaking with you, Helene. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to speak to you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us this week. And we hope you enjoy the show. And we'll see you next time here on Pool on the Grind on AmericanBillardRadio.com. 